Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Hope you're finding some joy in it. And we want to especially say, uh, moms, mothers, we are so thankful for you. And hopefully you can experience some joy in remembering your mom. Uh, but really, we don't want to sell it too short. I mean, how, how much of an impact you have on our lives. I mean, there are all kinds of moms today, right? And mothers. Uh, there are mothers that stay at home. There are mothers that need to go to work or, or want to go to work, and there's all kinds of that. Uh, there's moms that are doing it single motherhood. And uh, I make no joke when I say that that is the most difficult job short of God's on this planet. Because it's just, there's so much to do there. So we want to support you if that's the situation that you're in. And we're so thankful for you and the ministry you have to kids if you have those kids. Uh, for those that don't have kids, though, I mean, you, you have the, a nurturing spirit, you're doing ministry, you're loving people in your family. You know, uh, we just want to celebrate all of you, uh, ladies, and we're so thankful for that. And really, Mother's Day fits into, ironically, I didn't plan it this way, I wish I could say I did, but I have to admit, it was the Holy Spirit that did this. The text and the subject that we're going to deal with today is perfect for Mother's Day. Uh, because we're going to talk about a subject that we are so familiar with, we tend to gloss over it and we forget. You know, one of the ways to deal with things like loss or, you know, wondering what life's about and so forth is to be grateful and, and have some gratitude for what God has done and the people like mom that he's put in your life. You know, even if you've lost them, there's something about the gratefulness and the thankfulness for, for her uh, that sort of changes the moment for you and gives you a little rest and gives you a little peace, right? And, and that's because that's the way we were designed. And, and what we're going to look at today is so familiar to us, and it's the most famous verse in the Bible that's all over the place, and it's been plastered in places that it wasn't, probably shouldn't have been plastered, and we're so used to it that we sort of think it's mundane. Uh, you know, it's sort of like my kids used to say, uh, since this is Mother's Day, I'll do an illustration of my kids, even though they're all in their 30s now, but they used to say, yeah, I know that, Dad. You know, I'd say something that I thought was pretty profound, they, I know that. And, and we kind of do that with this scripture. We kind of do that with this truth. Uh, that we're talking about. And, and to sort of illustrate it, how powerful this truth is, I uh, had a friend one time that came to me and said, you know what? You know why I became a Christian? I said, why? He said, because I came to this point where I realized the life that I had created for myself wasn't enough. I said, yeah, well, that makes sense. No, he said, you don't get it. I, I kind of came to the edge of this precipice and realized that the life I had created for myself was just too small and it wasn't worth it. And I was at the end and I was just getting bored. Oh, yeah. And worse than that, I felt I had this deep burden that there must be something more to life. And I had this deep burden that if it was going to happen, I had to make it up. In other words, it was going to have to be make-believe and I was going to have to fake myself out. That's when I started reading the Bible. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, I became a Christian. I, I have heard a, a variation on that theme dozens of times in my life. Maybe you have too. Maybe it's happened to you that way. But what that theme is, is the theme of kind of getting a glimpse at what we would call, what the Bible calls, what Jesus called eternal life. That's a phrase, that's a, that's a, a word, an eternal life that we just kind of gloss over now because we get so used to it. And you, know, and you know the verse I'm talking about. I'm talking about John 3.16. You see it on a sports program at the end zone. Somebody holds up the sign as if, you know, somebody's going to drop their nachos and run to their Bible and say, what does that say? You know, 
which I'm not dissing the guy that does that, but it, it doesn't, doesn't really make a lot of difference. Maybe somebody came to Christ from that, watching the Super Bowl or something. I just don't know. Maybe their team was losing really bad. But the reality is, is the question of this is what is eternal life? I want to sort of just start getting a handle on this and try to understand this, and not, not just a mental handle, but a heart handle, because we really want to try to open up our hearts to it today. I want to, I want to read you a paraphrase of uh, John 3.16, and here it goes, like this. It says, for God so loved the people of this world he created that he sent his son Jesus, his only son, so that everyone who believes in him no longer needs to deconstruct their life trying to get a handle on things, but they will have a resilient life that not only lasts forever, but a life that is truly life, and you don't even have to make believe. Yeah, yeah that, you know what that is. That, that's, that's from the uh, DSFV version. That's the Dwayne Seriously Flawed version. But it's my Mother's Day gift to all of you. So I mean, but I think that covers it. It's not a direct translation. That's why I said it's a, it's a, it's a paraphrase. But I don't want to change the word of God. But I think all of that's in there. It's certainly in all of the text because John uses this phrase eternal life at the beginning and he uses it at the, at the end of what we're going to look at today. So it's sort of a framing. He's talking about eternal life. We're supposed to get the point. And, and um, there's the first couple of times he uses that, uh, the, the, that term. He'll use it again. But uh, what John is doing is he's reflecting on what he saw in Jesus, the kind of life he saw in Jesus, and the kind of life that he has lived now for 50 or 60 years. That it's actually possible to live eternal life. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles, to, if you haven't already, to John chapter 3, uh, verse 16. And we're going to look at this, and uh, I, you know, there's another thing about moms that I've discovered, or, or you ladies uh, that I've discovered over the years of being a pastor, is that you tend to bring your Bibles to church more than the guys. So just tell your men and your kids to open their Bibles if you're watching this online or you're here today. So here's, here's how it's, it, it, it kind of says in the translation I have here, beginning of verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When I memorized this, this is how old I am, I memorized it in the King James Version. Some of you aren't old enough to even know what the King James Version is. I memorized it in the King James Version. It says everlasting life, but I'm sure glad they've changed that because it is everlasting life, this eternal life, but it's not all that is. What do you mean, Dwayne? Well, that's what we're going to explain. Just keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world, verse 17, to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged, and the, uh, the one who believes in him is not judged, and the one who does not believe in him has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this judgment, uh, this is the judgment that the light, capital L, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, so his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. That's a mouthful right there. There's a lot in there. 
I just want to, what I want to do here is just sort of unpack the, the statements or the words verse by verse as we go along in each of these passages, okay? And so the first couple of words we notice is the God so loved that he gave. So he gave, what he gave? He gave in two directions. He gave his son to the world, to this earth, and then Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. So it's talking about the atonement. And this is a, a reflection that John, by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is sort of unpacking for us the previous story. What was the previous story? It was last week, Nicodemus discovering the intersect between uh, the divine reality, God himself, and this world, our lives. So we said last week it was a very practical thing. It wasn't just some theological, you know, abstract ooh, thing out there somewhere. It's a very practical, real thing. And this is practical, real thing too. For example, when God says he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the words one and only are a double entendre, are a doubling up, if you will, in uh, the... New Testament Greek, it means really intense. He really loved his son. And it was that kind of love with which he showed us his love. In other words, it's a, the word is agape. You've heard that before. It's this intent, not, intense, not going to stop, always pursuing, always after the object, the person, the thing that it loves. And that's how God thinks of himself. You see, here's a piece of doctrine that becomes very practical and not something airy out there and La, la, la. You know, this, this specific doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons? You, you do realize that Christianity is the only faith system that believes that. But we think, well, that's just a nice thing to put on the shelf for our theological books and whatnot. No. This is where it gets really, really practical because it becomes God's love is what caused all this to start in the first place for him to send Jesus. And the love that he was doing, it wasn't new. He actually had that within himself. And then he loved his, 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 uh, his uh, creation with the same kind of love, the people that he created with the same kind of love. And the whole story of the gospel is God is ultimately going to uh, express that in a way that he expresses it through you and me. That's why the tagline of this series in John is uh, that as I have loved you, Jesus much later in John will say, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, that that's actually possible. You see the love from the Trinity coming down in the sun right into our lives, that becomes extremely, the Trinity becomes extremely practical. And John's pulling back the curtain by the, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, being able to pull back the curtain of how God operates within himself and then how he operates with us day by day, moment by moment. But he says another thing in here too. He says those uh, who do not believe in the light, uh, you know, hate the, uh, hate the light. They, they, those who do evil, they hate the light. You know, I used to think that that verse was like, okay, so God, you want me to be against those that hate the light. You want me to strike out, but that's not how Jesus operates. What does Jesus do to people that do evil? He loves them back. In other words, he doesn't hate back. And I think that's probably what he's talking about here. It's not that we say, okay, I'm going to be, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like a lemming. I'm just gonna go over the cliff with everybody else. Nope, that's not what it's saying. But it's saying the way that we push back is through this love of God that is a powerful thing. 
It's not all soft and warm and fuzzy. I mean, there is some softness. We real need the softness of our hearts. Yeah, absolutely. But it's something that actually plows through the evil of the world, just like light breaks through the darkness. Have you ever seen darkness try to stop the light and try to cover up the light? It can't do it. Because that's how, and that's what, what John is saying God's love is like. And then the final statement I want you to notice is all these things that we do, they're performed in God. Or the, the uh, more literal translation uh, than if you have the NIV, it's a decent translation, but it, it says it's done in the sight of God. That doesn't really cover it. It's done by people, uh, this eternal life is done by people who are doing it by God. They're in God. They're in Christ, if you will. So you're performed in God. In other words, it's not even us that pulls it off. Do we need to put one step in front of the other? Yes. Do we need to get off, off our duffs and do the ministry that he calls us to? Yes. But it's not all us. It's not on us. It's a gift. It's a gift. Even in this world, John is contrasting eternal life with the world. The translation of the word world that you see in the New Testament, especially in the book of John, means life of the age. He's contrasting eternal life, not just Life forever, but life as it's lived now in eternal life with the life of the age, whatever the age is, whether the first century or the 21st century. And he's saying that, the ability to do that, is a gift. So eternal life is a gift, not a personal achievement. Whew. Because if I, if I had to pull that off, you have to pull that off. We're just not that big. We're, we're just not that powerful. It's why when you start to say, hey, I have my life philosophy, my life philosophy, I have my truth. It's a really, really tiny package, and pretty soon you wind up dis disintegrating because it's not enough. But the eternal life that Jesus wants to give is a gift. You see, this is a theme that's all through the New Testament, all through John, but all through the New Testament, and it, you even see it in the Old Testament. Probably one of the best places you see it is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, uh, where, where Paul is describing for us where faith comes from. Watch this. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Did you know your faith was actually a gift from God? The ability to believe in him? That when you feel that tug of the Holy Spirit, that's the beginning of God saying, hey, I got a gift for you. You can believe this. You, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about, but you're going to have to believe in me. That's what it is. It's a gift from God. By now, uh, verse 9, but uh, not by works so that anyone can boast. In other words, it's not our achievement. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works with God prepared in advance for us to do. Oh, you mean once I become a Christian, you're not asking me to hide under my desk and wait for Jesus to come back? You mean it's more exciting than that? Yes, it's more exciting than that. But it's even more exciting than that, that God's got some works for us to do. It's that, that the ability to even live into that and do that and live that life is a gift from God himself. So it's not on our power and our strength. It's on Jesus' resilient resurrection power that we're able to do it. That does not sound boring to me at all. And I don't think it's meant to be boring at all. 
You see, the reason I'm going on and on about this is because that is so cool. It's, it's, it's the gift of God. It's not our achievements. And it's possible to live this eternal life. It's a key component of eternal life. That's one reason why I'm going off. But also going off because I think we Christians, because of this familiarity thing, whether it be with John 3.16 or anything about what God, Jesus teaches us about God in our lives, we have this switch after a while if we're not careful. There's this sort of hidden switch and I don't know about you, but it's happened to me where I'll read something and I'll do that thing like my kids do. That. Yeah, I know that. I already know that. And we may already know it. In our heads, we rationally, reasonably know it. But when it comes to our hearts, the only way to find out the meaning of the truth that we know is to imagine what that means. To experience God's touch on our hearts to say, this is what it means, and this is what it means, and this is what it means. That's why Bible study is actually an adventure. It doesn't mean you're going to get the zinger verse that you just need every single day. But it does mean you're on sort of a treasure hunt. We'll look at that a little later. But that's the wonder. It's a gift. And that's what God wants us to see and wants us to understand. And John then, again, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, okay, so what does this eternal life look like on earth? And he gives us an example of John the Baptist. Okay, so I'm going to call him John B. Or Johnny B. Not Johnny B. Good, but Johnny B. Because John, the author of John, is not John the Baptist, and I don't want us to get confused, okay? Just saying. So John B. Here we go. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So Jesus is baptizing now, but then it switches over to John B. Verse 23, now John also was baptizing in Anon and Salim, because there was an abundance of water there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So probably the argument was this Jewish person was saying, oh, you're baptizing for purification. And John's saying, no, 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 no. This is repentance of sin. Uh, you know, and he said, oh, because there was all this stuff about, you know, how to be purified and spiritually pure and all that kind of stuff. And John's trying to clarify this. So in the midst of this dispute here, uh, up come some of John's disciples. Then, the, then a matter of di- uh, dispute developed on a part of John's disciples about the, uh, a, with a Jew about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who has, was with you beyond the Jordan, talking about Jesus now, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all the people are coming to him. And John, and I imagine he replied with a little wry smile on his face, said this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. It's a gift. I didn't achieve any of this, guys. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of the Christ. I have been given a work to do. He who has has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice and what he says, I assume. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. What's interesting here is he says that, you know, uh, he, he's, there's this sort of sense that this is before John makes it clear, John the gospel writer 
Luke makes it clear that this is before he goes to prison. So things are pretty chaotic. What that's sort of a flag for is that John knew that they wanted to kill him. They wanted to lock him up and ultimately just take him out. That's what they wanted to do, just like they would later try to do to Jesus. And so he knew that things were crazy. He didn't know how long he had. In fact, as far as we know, this is the last words that we know of that John spoke on this earth. I mean, we, we, don't, we, don't, we know that he sent some disciples later on and, and so forth when he was in prison, but we don't, we don't know exactly much else about John saying anything in the Gospels. And so what this is, is John looking at his life and seeing and having this sense of, oh, this is it. This is why I'm here. All that other scary stuff doesn't really matter because this is it. And, 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 and that's eternal life. And what's also eternal life is this sense of joy. Do you see how he says, this is the joy of mine has been full. What does that mean? This is it. And he's getting excited about it. He's got this sense of, of intensity because he's been looking for this. He's been looking for this. I knew he was the one. You know, that kind of thing. And, and, and John is getting excited about the, the possibility of what might be and, and the possibility of, of, of how uh, this is all going to play out because God has been true here and here and here and here and here. And I'm so thankful that he was, but that means he's going to be true there that he's going to be true for what's ahead and all the promises that he has made. You know what that is? That's called eternal life. Not just everlasting living in eternity, but starting now. Starting to get the sense of that. And, 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 and John says, hey, he must, de- I'm, he must increase while I decrease. And, and you know, a 21st century person, if we were standing there, we go, are you okay with that? Oh, absolutely, because you know what? That means that God's going to fulfill his promise. That's, how, that, 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 that's what John is doing here. You mean, your life's been, yeah, all that eating grasshoppers and honey and stuff in the desert, it's all been worth it. That's what he's saying. Isn't that, isn't that, a, that that's eternal life because it's, there's perspective of what it is. And there's not a dull piece of that at all for John. There's not a mundane, overly familiar thing at all. I want to read you sort of a description of what, Life with Jesus is meant to be, and therefore eternal life is meant to be right now for you and I, from now until we go on to be in eternity, and then in eternity we'll have it on full throttle. But the reality is is that this is what it's supposed to look like in in comparison to the times in which we live. This is from Dorothy Sayers. She says this. She says, the official Christianity of late has been having what is known as, a, as bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers, those crazy people, insist too much upon doctrine. In other words, doctrine here is, is the gospel, uh, uh, you know, good news. Preachers insist too much on doctrine, dull dogma as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of the gospel or dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama ever staged or that has ever staggered the imagination of man. That's significant because she was a playwright for the first half of her life and wrote many, many plays throughout her life. 
staggered the imagination of man, and the dogma is the drama. If we think it is dull, it is because we either have never really read the amazing documents or have recited them so often and so mechanically as to have lost all sense of their meaning. I think maybe that's why John 3.16 is so dull to so many people. Because they don't really have, they think they grasp it. They think they've been there, done that. They haven't. And there's always more to understand and to explore and to live into in that. I just love the way Dorothy's, you may have heard this before because I've used this before, obviously, but I just love this woman. She's funny, she's funny. I mean, I don't love her as much as I love the person that's the mom in my own house right now, but that anyway, she's just impactful in so many ways. But the reality is, is that it, there's nothing dull about it at all. You see, belief in Jesus, the author of eternal life, that's what makes everything new. That's what makes, makes everything worth living. And that, there's nothing dull. Or You see, when we get into the doldrums is when we start focusing on that tiny little package again and believing in ourself. You know, what, what's the alternative to, to believing in God? The, the, the alternative is to begin to kind of believe in ourselves. And, and, and you know, we, we hear this all the time, don't we? We hear uh, athletes say, well, I'm going to get out of the slump as soon as I start believing in myself, which, you know, I understand what they're saying, but that's just not enough for your life. Or we'll hear rioters say, you know, I just got to believe we're believing in ourselves, and they're not, I'm not saying athletes and rioters are the same. Or we'll say everyday people, and they're not the same either, who say, the people we know say, I just got to believe in myself more. But it's not enough, because it's not enough to believe in. You know, what is it that we believe in as Christians? What does it mean to live into eternal life? Well, one thing it means is that something happens within you, you move one step and another step and a day and another day, and, and you look back in your life and you go, wow, look what God did in my life. That's eternal life. And you might not see it on the day-to-day -day scale, but as you look back, you realize it, and then you realize that that portrays what he's going to do in the future. Then you still do start to see it on the day-to-day -day scale. You know, there's all kinds of scriptures about how this works and what's happening to you and I as we live into eternal life that Jesus has brought. And one of the most uh, significant ones uh, is, is really the New Testament verse that describes what we typically call sanctification. What's sanctification? That's a big churchy word. It's just what God does for you and me, how he saves us. We've already been saved from our sin and justification, but how he transforms us and, and therefore, quote, saves us between when we become a Christian and when we die and go into heaven and in eternity. And that process of what's happening, this verse describes what happens every day, day in and day out for a person, a Christian who is living into Jesus and therefore living into eternal life. Look at uh, verse, um, and I'm going to read it from the New American Standard 2020 because the other translations say, uh, don't use a certain word that is in the original text actually, uh, but uh, for whatever reason they've, they've decided to kind of describe it but I, I wanted you to see what's here. There's, a, there's something, a surprise in here that I want you to see. Verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Hang on to that. 
We, with unveiled faces, we're not, you know, it's not cloudy anymore. It's not confusing anymore. We're starting, the picture's getting clearer and clearer. What are we doing? We're staring at a mirror. As James says, the word of God is a mirror. We're staring at a mirror, but what are we seeing? We're seeing the glory of the Lord. Come back to that. Let's move on. Being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The image we see in the mirror, we're being transformed into the same image of glory, from glory to glory, just as the Lord, as from the Lord, the Spirit. Not only does he give you the faith, not only does he give you the ability and the power to get up in the morning and live eternal life today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day, but he's doing something else. He's doing something called transformation between when you become a Christian and when you uh, leave the earth. What's that he doing? Well, it has to do with that mirror. That's the word that isn't used in the other translations. Looking in the mirror, and who are you seeing? Who do you see when you look in the mirror? Well, I see, this morning I saw that I didn't shave quite right. But, Paul, but what Paul's saying is, this, no, 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 there's something more. As you look in the mirror, the mirror of the word, you start to realize, hey, I've, done, I've experienced that. Hey, what Jesus promised would happen, that's happened to me. Hey, you know, and that's what eternal life is. You're being transformed until the face you see in the mirror is his. Isn't that something? Then you and I will be ready for eternity. Not that we will be actually Jesus, but that he will be living through us to the point that we see a reflection of him in our lives. And when others do that, you know, enough of those people become those kind of people. Enough Christians become those kind of people. Guess what? Everybody's going to see it. And the world, the life of this age is going to change. And ultimately, we know it's going to change, but it can change right now. You see, this is what John, with all his intensity, because as you read the stories of John and, you know, all the camel hair and all the crazy stuff, and the repent, you know, coming out of the wilderness, all the crazy stuff, the intensity, you realize that he's kind of relaxed about his intensity, if you can, if there, you know, I know it's an oxymoron, but I invented this term, so we're gonna, we're gonna use it and publish it. But in the, the in relaxed intensity is a part of the Christian life. Why? Because you have this joy of, I've seen God do it before, and I know he can do even more. And he starts to reveal to you what life looks like going forward in his word. And you become more and more like him. You see, eternal life, that's the nature of eternal life too. Eternal life is the lifestyle of relaxed intensity and pure joy. Well, you know what this calls for? This calls for John to explain it in a little bit deeper terms because, boy, howdy, does he fire off a bunch of theological stuff here in these next verses. But, again, they become so practical when you start to look at some of the specific phrases. Verse 31, he says, And he who comes from above is above all. And the one who is... Uh, only from the earth is from the earth and speaks from the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So that's the third time he said above. What he has, has seen and heard of this, he testifies and no one accepts his testimony. Why? Because we can't. He's talking about what it's like in the Godhead in heaven, how God is with himself. And Jesus is testifying this and it's no wonder that people can't understand it because we need the gift of his insight, we need the gift of the Holy Spirit to even figure it out. 
So he's saying they don't accept his testimony. Verse 33, the one who has accepted his testimony, though, even though they can't fully comprehend it, has certified that God is true. And for he, capital H, whom God sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give the Spirit, capital S, sparingly. And the Father loves the Son and has entrusted all things to his hand, and the one who believes in his Son has eternal life. There it is again at the end of the passage. But the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We get hung up on the wrath of God thing, but the reality is, yeah, God is has his wrath oriented towards sin. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, and he hates death. So yeah, you're going to choose to live in that? That's the orientation of wrath in your direction. That's what it's talking about. doesn't mean God just hates. No, because that's not how he treated people when he was here, when Jesus was here, was it? But notice John says, look, Jesus is coming from above, above, above three times, and he's speaking what he has seen so, so again, there's this practical intersect between what's going on there with God and us. He's, he's sort of vamping on what Jesus told Nicodemus about being born again, which I found out this morning, by the way, my wife's uh, anniversary, it's been a few decades, she was a little girl when this happened, her anniversary of her being born again when she became a Christian, today, just found that out. That was exciting to me, and I wanted to share it with you because I, again, it's been a few decades, but more than a few decades. But man, it's uh, that's exciting. But thinking at the life that she's, it's just incredible. I, I, I OD on my own bliss. But that's what John is saying. That's what happens to a life when what is above comes into this world. But notice the other thing he says. He says that he, you know, he speaks the words of God, and he does not give his spirit sparingly. He says, I'm going to even fill you with this opportunity to see God in your own life. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give my spirit so much that it's going to overflow in your life. That's the word, the terminology Jesus uses. Uses it in Luke 6, he uses it in other places. All through the New Testament, the Spirit of God falls and it just sort of overflows more than we can handle. Isn't that interesting? Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is God Himself. It's the third member of the Trinity. It's the one who supports and teaches us and reminds us of what Jesus taught us and what Jesus has done and what He's done in our lives. Jesus makes that clear. What's interesting to me, though, is that John is putting it here by the inspiration of that same spirit, by the way. He's putting this business about the spirit overflowing out of your life uh, and, and not being sparingly given to you. He's talking about it in the third chapter. I mean, this is early in John. I know we've had seven, seven sermons on John already, but we're not very far along yet. Don't panic. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But but the reality is, is that Jesus doesn't actually say, hey, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit until chapter 15 and 16 when they're in the upper room and uh, he's looking at, at his disciples and Judas has just left and Jesus is talking about somebody betraying him and they're not sure what's going on and they got the deer in the headlights look and Jesus says, hey, hey, don't worry. I'm going to send my counselor. I'm going to send the advocate. I'm going to send my spirit to you and he'll remind you of everything that I'm teaching you. It's not all on you to... 
you know, write this all down, but go ahead and write that down, John, because you might want to write a gospel someday. That kind of thing. Is, 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 or that, that, that's when it happens. Why does he introduce it? Because it's so important for the entire nature of eternal life and what he's going to describe and what we're going to see in Jesus. That's why. Because there is this overflowing, Jesus called it a fountain of the love of God in your life and mine. And this is where uh, something that happened in my life, an interaction with somebody that happened in my life that I've used before is so illustrative. I'm just going to take a few minutes to describe it, okay? Uh, I've used it before many times. If, this, if you recognize this and you go, oh yeah, okay, I've heard him use that story again, just look forward and go, man, that is the most profound thing I've ever heard. So, um, because it's not me profound, it's, it's uh, somebody else. And, uh, but I want everybody to hear this, so I don't mind telling it again. Uh, I have a friend and, and a mentor, uh, a spiritual mentor, who uh, is probably the most significant person to, in my life. And, and the first time I got to know him was 1983. He's going to turn 100 next year, God willing, if he's still with us. Still got a mind as sharp as a tack. It's, it's amazing. He's still teaching classes. And, and so he'll, he'll turn 100 next year. But his name is Dr. James or Jim Houston. And I first met him in 1983 when I went to summer school. You see, in, in, in 1983, I was um, maybe a third to a half way through seminary at that time. Planning to be a pastor. Pretty sure when I started that I had a call to be a pastor. But I was in a bad place. I, I was going to chuck the whole pastor thing. And here's why. I was in a church that just got me down, 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 dooby-doo, down, down. I got, I got, I, we, we were in a church, Sharon and I were married at this time, and, and we, we were in a church that was just dry. It was a desert. It was just such a struggle. Uh, being there, I mean, and, and we, I felt kind of trapped, and then I suddenly realized, wait a minute, I know how this drill works. Young pastors like me, we go to three years of seminary, and then we graduate, and then they stick us in churches like that just so we can practice. And I, I'm pretty sure I don't have it within me to lift up and to help a church like that. And secondly, I might hurt somebody if I go in a church like that. And so I was like, I'm going to chuck the whole thing. I'm just going to, I'm not, Lord, I'll do whatever you want in ministry, but just don't make me be a pastor. And uh, so it was that summer that I, you know, I was going to make a decision by fall. I was considering not, you know, even finishing seminary, but I, I went to a Regent College Summer School, which Dr. Houston was the founder of Regent College back in 1969 or 70, I think it was. And, um, and so uh, he was uh, sort of the patriarch there. And, and uh, the real reason I went there was, number one, they had world-class people that I still, you know, love to listen to, scholars, J.A. Packer, different people that I wanted to get in on. So I, I went there for that. But the real reason I went there was that I had read in a magazine that Dr. Uh, Houston, uh, Jim Houston, had been, wait for it, a protege. He had been a friend and had him in his house of C.S. Lewis. Okay? See, I was a geek back then too. Okay? So he had known C.S. Lewis for seven years, like they, they, they interacted uh, in, in when they were in Oxford, and when, Lewis, when Houston was in Oxford. So I get there, and in those days, what happened in summer school, I don't think they're doing this anymore, but you got this, because he was the founder, and because he has this really uh, God-given gift for just nurturing people, caring people, uh, uh, you know, caring for people, uh, you'd get this little ticket when you registered for class uh, that says, please come to tea at such and such a time with Dr. Houston. 
And the word in the street was there would be three or four other people there at that time. Okay, this was my chance. So the next day was my ticket. It was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something. So I showed up 15 minutes early because I knew there were other people coming, and I wanted him to myself for a minute. And so he sits down, and he was there early too, and he sits down and he says, hey, what's your name? And Dwayne, we get to know each other and so forth. And I said, uh, yeah, my name is Dwayne. Hey, what's C.S. Lewis like? Right? He goes, well, <laughs> he, was, he was nonplussed. He's apparently been asked this, answered this question before. He said, well, uh, what, what I tell people is that C.S. Lewis was simply a mere Christian. He wasn't a theologian or a pastor or anything like that. He was simply the one who used his gifts that God had given him for the glory of God, and Jesus, God used him in incredible ways. And he says, because of that, there should be mere Christians all over the place. Maybe there are. There probably are. We just haven't heard of them. But people who've been used by God in amazing, uh, wonderful ways, uh, just by simply using whatever gifts they are, whether they're plumbers or lawyers or scholars or whatever they are. Oh, okay. Then he started asking questions because I, I think he knew I had other questions. He said, so what brings you here to summer school, Dwayne? And I said, uh, uh, well... I told him the whole story about not wanting to be a pastor. So I went up to his, he said, well, the other gal, there were two other gals that came along by then and they kind of invaded my space. And they came and, and he knew he had to give them some attention. He said, Dwayne, we should talk some more. And I said, oh, okay. And you come to my office tomorrow. So I went to his office, whenever the appointment was, and I sat down and he said, now tell me again about what's going on with you and, and what the struggle is. And I told him all about the church and all about not wanting to be a pastor and so forth and so on. And I, in those days, I carried a little notebook in my back pocket it was before, you know, digital phones and all that kind of stuff. And so I sat down and, and I pulled out my little notepad and I tell him, you know, uh, what the deal is. And he says to me, okay, I have three things to say to you. Okay, good. The first thing I need to say to you is you're not crazy. Oh, I like that. Not crazy. He says, because you live in a spiritual desert. Yeah. You live in a place that's so dry and so devoid of anything God seems to be doing. And even in your church that it's just... It's, it's frustrating, yeah. And he says, second thing I need to tell you is you need to understand the cosmic significance of what you're going through. Cosmic. And I wasn't the really uh, the intellectual brain that I am today. <laughs> that was a joke. But I, 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 so I had to say, the cosmic what? Cosmic significance. He said, what? He said, what you need to understand is, he put it in my terms, Jesus is burdened and his heart's breaking for that church too. He's struggling too. He, 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 he does the sorry state of the church in the world today, he said, it's breaking his heart too. And so he's with you in this. So there's cosmic significance. I said, okay. And he said, what, I said, what's the third thing? The third thing is, is you need to think about going out and digging a well, which was weird to me because I'd just been on internship as a pastor in a church way out in the sticks and they had an outhouse and my first job was to, um, I mean, this is way out in the sticks. My first job was to dig a new hole for the outhouse. I thought, oh, what? You know, so my, my, my brain was fried even then. But, but he said, no, you need to understand that Jesus says that we can have the well of the Holy Spirit and the love of God just welling up in our lives. And he said, I'd just take the question whether you should be a pastor or not and put it aside for a while. And and, and just leave it on, on, on the edge, uh, uh, off to the side. And you can decide all that stuff later. But right now, just dig your well deep with Jesus so you strike the love of God in your own heart and life. And then you know what's going to happen? Is you're going to take that fountain with you. And you can go to the driest, darkest, deserty place, whether it's a church or something else, doesn't matter. 
and you're going to be an oasis because there'll be water there where there wasn't water, the water of Jesus there where there wasn't before. Oh. You see, I don't don't know if I've actually lived into that metaphor, but it has gotten me out of a ton of rotten situations in my life. Not the least of which is about mm, 10 years later, you guys all saved me from, uh, from my, my, my sorrowful condition as the most reluctant pastor in all of North America. But see, that's, but that's the, what Jesus is trying to say to us. is, Hey, it's, it's not, you'll, you'll never run dry. I'm not going to do this sparingly, just a little bit of spirit. It's just overflowing. You see, that's the wonder, and that's what we need to get. If we want to live in the the eternal life, we need to focus on worshiping him, not just worship when we come on Sunday, which is so awesome. We have such a blessed blessed situation here at this church, the amazing worship we get to do. But all the time, every single day, that life isn't devoid of the the worshipful times and the non-worshipful times. It's not the secular times and the sacred times. It's, It's all sacred. It's all worship. And we live our life. And to realize that, that that's living into eternal life where the spirit overflows. You know, the only other alternative really is to worship ourselves. And boy, howdy, do a lot of people learn how to worship themselves. I want to be famous. I want to be this. I want to be that. And you, they think that's their destiny. Only to realize that when you worship yourself and it's such a small package that it eventually, you know, fails you, then you wind up hating yourself. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to stop that process. You don't need to worship yourself. Again, a, a Sayers quote about this that is, is, is powerful. Look at this. It says, Christ in his divine innocence said to the woman at Samaria, he's talking about the woman at the well, which we'll look at in the next uh, three weeks in chapter four of John. Ye worship, ye know not what. That's King James. Being apparently under the impression that it might be desirable to be on the whole to know what one was worshiping. little sarcasm there. That's one thing I love about her because it makes me laugh. It's kind of the twisted sense of humor I have. But she thus, or he thus showed himself sadly out of touch with the 20th century mind or the 21st century mind for the cry today is, and sadly not for his part but for our part, Away with the tedious complexity of dogma or the gospel. Let us have the uh, simple spirit of worship, just worship, no matter what. In other words, no matter what we're worshiping. Because we're designed to worship, we can't help it. Got to worship something. The only drawback is that this demand for a generalized, undirected worship is the practical difficulty of arousing any sort of enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. (laughs) You know, could that be why we have so much struggle and pain and so inability in the world to, to live out this eternal life in our time in these days? Could it be that we only find ourselves worshiping that which we can fully comprehend, that we can fully control? And that isn't Jesus, is it? I mean, it makes no sense. If we could, if we could fully comprehend God, that's, you know, that, that could be any human being. But it's beyond us. But that's why John keeps saying, believe, believe, believe. You take the step of belief and you are beyond. You see, he says, you get this insight into God because you get the insight into what's above because those are the words Jesus speaks. So eternal life is having more insight than you can process into how God works within himself and how God works 
uh, for himself and loves himself and what he actually is doing through your life. And that is what eternal life is. It's all, it's, it's, it, in, in one way, it's kind of, you know, stunning, maybe even a little terrifying to realize who he is and what he's about, what he's up to in this world, but also so attractive all at the same time and so amazing that we're drawn to it like the greatest treasure ever. I just got to go find that. And you live into it. That is eternal life. So that makes our final thought today look something like this. This kind of lifestyle of living for eternal life with Jesus will be a revelation of Jesus. It's the, in other words, it's a gift of Jesus, in, of, of letting you see him in your life. And this, this eternal life lifestyle, you begin to see, hey, he is here. I see him there, and I see him there, I see him there. And to your heart, you'll start to feel it. You'll start to be able to imagine what the future looks like in Jesus, which is always good because he's gotten you here. And in this world, you know, he's, he's, he, he's transformed people again and again and again, including you and, and people you know and the church that you belong to. And ultimately, though, what he wants to do is reveal Jesus to the world through you and I. Can that happen? What John is saying is, what, what the Bible is saying, what Jesus is saying through the Bible is, yeah, it is happening. It's happening all alone. Just open your eyes. Open your eyes to the eternal life that is all around you all the time. How do we do that? Well, you have to have some reason. You have to understand what you did, like we unpacked the scripture today. But then you got to have, like I said, the heart imagination to understand the meaning of what you've discovered in the truth. And one of the best ways to do that, to engage your heart and your mind, is to pray, to talk to God himself. So let's do that right now. Our loving Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are here with us right now on this Mother's Day. And be with those moms, especially uh, the, the ladies in our life who are so important to us, but maybe have some sorrow and difficulty in their life, especially those that have experienced loss, especially those of us who have experienced loss of our moms. But also just may the moms that are are here with us, just know how much they're appreciated, even though life can be difficult day to day. And Lord, I just pray that you would show us the reality of what all that means in eternal life, the wonder of what it means to live with you in that kind of way. Because if you are with us, you are the eternal word, which makes you eternal life. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for that truth. And we just pray that you'd help us live it out this week and the next and the next. It's in your name we pray. Amen.